You can turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, we'll finish up this chapter this morning, looking at verses 13 through 17. Just to reflect upon the, the story that really this whole chapter is pointing us to. If you go back to Genesis, you know God created everything and gave man dominion over it. Right? But also, he gave man the responsibility to work and to keep the garden. And when Adam neglected to guard the garden, to keep it, the servant entered and deceived Eve, tempting her to eat the forbidden fruit. And then she gave some to Adam. And we read in chapter 2, verse 25, prior to the fall, that man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But then immediately after eating the fruit, in chapter 3, verse 7, it says they knew that they were naked. In other words, they immediately felt shame. So we talked about that last week, this idea of shame and its relationship to our ongoing struggle with patterns of sin in our life. Right? So they, they hid themselves. Adam and Eve hid themselves from God and one another. And God punishes the serpent for deceiving the woman. But in the midst of that punishment, giving that curse that he would, that he would be along, along the ground, eating the dust, there's this promise as well. It's the first promise of the gospel in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So that's the gospel in miniature. That is God sending his son in the likeness of man. As we've read earlier, the likeness of sinful flesh, and he condemns sin in the flesh. He puts it to death on the cross. And in that moment, on that cross, he bruises. He, he, or while his heel is bruised, he is crushing the head of the serpent. Well, Revelation 12 is the fulfillment and culmination of that first gospel promise. It's describing how that takes place. And it's how the seed of the woman crushed the head of the serpent. And even that language, the seed of the woman, right, can be interpreted, it's a, it's a fluid word. It can mean one, but it can also mean many. And it has that ability to be used in that, in that way where you could be talking about Christ and you could also be talking about the church, those who are united to Christ, who are the body of Christ. And so verses 1 through 6 in this chapter introduced the characters. It had the woman, uh, the dragon, and the child. And the woman, of course, represents the, the church and uh, the, the mother who brings forth the child, which is Christ, the Savior. And the dragon is very specifically mentioned in verse 9 as Satan himself. So verses 7 through 12 reveal what happened in heaven as Satan was defeated. And he, along with his angels, are cast down to earth. And so that passage concluded in verse 12 with this rejoicing in heaven because Satan has been kicked out. But then this woe that comes upon those who dwell on the earth because great wrath was coming down to them. Because this dragon knows that his time is short. 
So verses 13 through 17, which we'll be looking at this morning, provide further insight into that ongoing attack of the dragon upon the woman and her offspring. And so we'll see God's, as well, God's steadfast preservation of his covenant people. We've seen that throughout. Even as, even as the woman undergoes various trials and tribulation, God is faithful to protect and provide for her. Heaven, so that his accusations were no longer heard by God. And we said that that's, that's true and we can believe that to some degree. Right? We can understand that at least. We can, we can understand the logic. But the problem is we, we still have a hard time silencing those accusations in our head. Right, we hear Satan's continued accusations that we're not good enough, that we're not worthy. And God no longer listens, but we still do. And so Satan takes full advantage of our weakness. He pursues us with relentless commitment. But every spiritual attack is ultimately thwarted. By God, And so this message, the message of this passage is that God provides the church with everything that she needs to survive the fiercest drought and storm. And so before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we depend upon you to help us to understand these things. As we open your word, we know that you are speaking, Lord, and that you are doing a work through your word. But we are dependent upon your spirit to give us eyes to see, to give us ears to hear and hearts to be softened, that we would receive this truth and respond obediently, that we would not just be hearers only, but doers of your word. So, Lord, we do ask that you would speak to us this morning, that you would encourage us and exhort us and rebuke us, convict us of our sin. Lord, help us to understand even more deeply, the grace that is held out to us in Christ alone. Lord, help us to turn to him in faith and repentance and to glorify you as we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Read with me Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth and after the uh, after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from, its, from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, we see, first of all, in this section, verses 13 through 14, that the church is nourished. If you're following along in your outline, that's your first blank. The church is nourished. Now that the child is untouchable, enthroned in heaven, the dragon turns his attack upon the woman directly. The dragon pursues her, it says in verse 13, but she's given wings to fly into the wilderness where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time. For a, a long time, in other words. 
We read something similar when God rescued the Israelites out of Egypt before Moses went up onto Mount Sinai. God reminds the people how he brought them to himself on eagle's wings. That's the language that's used in Exodus 19, verse 4. Isaiah, in, in chapter 40, verse 31, prophesied that they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So this idea of eagle's wings, it conveys both strength and speed. Right? The woman was faster than the dragon so that she could escape his pursuit. And she flies then to the wilderness in order to get away from the serpent's attack. And she successfully does. Right? The wilderness, however, it, it had been associated with trial and persecution right? throughout the Old Testament. So as you read about her going into the wilderness, you wonder what's in store for her there. Right? She's gotten away from the threat of the dragon, but what's going to happen to her in the wilderness? And before his death, Moses encouraged the Israelites saying, in the wilderness... You have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. Think about that, the beautiful picture that is of a father carrying his son. Right, maybe when his son is too young or too tired to go on, the father carries his son through the wilderness. That's the image here of God protecting his people in the wilderness. Yes, they'll be tired. Yes, they'll go through challenges. But God will be with you. God will carry you even to old age, we read later on in Deuteronomy. That's a different picture, isn't it, of, a, of, an, of an old man being carried. But that's what God does for us, his people. Moses compares the Lord to an eagle who encircles Jacob, carrying or caring for him and then keeping him as the apple of his eye. He cherishes his people. Even in Hosea, where we get some of the language that we read in Ezekiel, very difficult language of understanding God as vision, uh, illustrating his own people as this adulterous bride right, who's rebelled against her husband and taken other lovers to herself. Well, in Hosea, we read this promise in chapter 2, verse 14. God promises to lure her into the wilderness where he will then speak tenderly to her. He pours out his favor upon her in the wilderness. Right, so under the new covenant, just like the old covenant, the church is repeatedly turning to God for rescue. In our own wilderness trials, right, we have a God who is steadfast and faithful to protect us and to preserve us and to nourish us through those trials. And this particular trial is described as being a time times and half a time we have seen this language already in the previous chapter several times uh, as 42 months or as 1260 days all of that is equal to three and a half years it's a period of literally three and a half years right and so we can point to other significant parallels to the relevance of three and a half years this was the same period that god's people were persecuted by the reign of king ahab and his wife Jezebel in 1 Kings 18, chapter, uh, verse 10 and 13. Uh, that same, during that time, God's word was powerfully displayed through Elijah, right? As he, he proclaims uh, or prophesies a drought upon the land. 
and its people are miraculously nourished during that time. And then also there was a three and a half year period that's the rough time frame for the persecution of Antiochus Epiphanes in uh, 167 to 164 BC. So roughly, you know, uh, well, 200 years before uh, Christ's death. So it was a, a period of severe persecution upon the church. It was a period of time that, that the church was familiar with. Right? They're familiar with a period of time that, that here in Revelation now takes on symbolic significance. Okay, so three and a half years for them is associated with tribulation and trial, but also protection. And here we see it's an indefinite period of time. It, in chapter 11, verse 2, the holy city is trampled for 42 months. Uh, the two witnesses in the very next verse are given the authority to prophesy for 1,260 days. And so all of these time frames are parallel one another. They're happening at the same time. The city is being trampled. The witnesses are prophesying. And now we see the woman is being nourished for 1,260 days. Or in this verse, in uh, verse 14, the woman is nourished in the wilderness for a time, times, and half a time, the time being a reference to a year. So a one year plus two years plus half a year for three and a half years. And then in the next chapter, chapter 13, verse 5, we'll see that this same time, 42 months, is given or allotted to the beast to proclaim blasphemous words. So this present age is defined by the church's proclamation of God's preservation of his covenant people in the midst of the dragon's persecution. That's, that's how we can describe all of these parallel uh, things taking place, right? So you have the, the trampling of the city, there's persecution. You have the beast blaspheming for 42 months, there's persecution. You have prophesying taking place by the, the church, uh, illustrated as two witnesses, uh, you know, proclaiming God's preservation and the fact that God will protect and preserve his people nourishing them. So the woman here flies to the wilderness in order to escape the dragon. And the New Covenant community experiences our own exodus right, as, as we escape this present darkness. Right, but, but as I've mentioned, the wilderness is the opposite of the promised land. The wilderness is, is not a place of agricultural abundance there's not a lot there it's a barren landscape and so she's at a safe distance from the dragon but now she suffers the threat of starvation that's the situation of the church in the wilderness she's completely dependent upon god for nourishment and so as we recognize that spiritually speaking we are in that same position are we not we undergo various trials and we depend upon God fully for our spiritual nutrients. And this is something that Christ promised to provide. In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 31 through 58, Jesus refers to himself as the true manna. Calling, to, calling attention to his disciples to remember the wilderness generation who was fed, who was nourished by manna, miraculously, bread from heaven, was sent down to them to provide for them. What Jesus now calls himself the true manna comes down from heaven. He says this, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes 
in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So the wilderness generation was provided manna and it sustained them through their lives. But they did still die. That first generation died in the wilderness, in fact. However, when we are nourished by the true manna, we have eternal life. All of it pointed forward to the true manna in Christ. The church is nourished and preserved in the context of corporate worship as we feed upon Christ in his word and sacrament. And if that is true, if we if we are nourished and fed as we gather corporately, that doesn't mean we can't be fed outside of that as, as we, we enter into a private time of worship or worship with our families. But we never want to neglect that corporate gathering because it's within that context, that, that context of the body of Christ gathering together where God feeds his people. That means that isolation from the context of nourishment is equivalent to starvation. To isolate yourself from the people of God is to starve yourself. It's to suggest that you can nourish yourself in the wilderness. That you can take care of yourself. You don't need the help that God has provided. Well, we'll see this illustration continue. Despite her safe distance from the dragon, the woman is still susceptible to his attack. In verses 15 and 16. Uh, Now, if you reflect upon the language here, the, the wilderness is nowhere near the sea in this case, right? She, the, the sea is the, dra- is the dragon's evil realm. That's, that's very typical of ancient uh, literature, where the sea is, is emblematic of, of chaos and sin and evil. So by going into the wilderness, she's escaping that chaos, that evil, but the serpent still attempts to sweep her away with a river poured from his mouth. Like you're, you've gotten away from the sea, but I'm going to bring the sea to you. I'm going to send it to you where you are to sweep you away. And so the serpent sends forth this flood of evil upon the woman. A flooding river is often used metaphorically in the Old Testament. So Greg Bill gives a, a ton of examples. We don't have nearly the time to, to look at all of them. But Bill points out all of these examples of flood language describing three basic categories. One is military conquest where it's like the the military covering the the ground, like the water covering the land. Um, You have just a general description of God's judgment as a flood or a river coming upon the land. And you also have it referring to the persecution of God's people. And that's really that last sense is what John is using here. That's what he especially has in mind. So the, the transition here, Notice he talks about the dragon, but then in verse uh, 14, he transitions to the serpent, right? From flying from the serpent into the wilderness. And in verse 15, again, the serpent poured water like a river. He's obviously connecting us here to that garden experience, right? Where Adam and Eve were deceived as the serpent attacked. So once again, the serpent is attempting to deceive the woman into compromise with sin. Wave upon wave of evil smashes against the church. 
But God's promise holds true. At Isaiah 43, verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. You'll experience that crashing of waves. You'll, you'll go through that trial. The storms will come into your life, but they will not overflow you because I'm with you. And then you have this interesting image here in verse 16. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And you wonder, what does that mean? What is that referring to? Well, here we have another allusion to the Exodus. After escaping Egypt, the Israelites found themselves on the shore of the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army swiftly approaching. And they had escaped Egypt, but now the army is pursuing them. And it's, and it's hard on their tails. And Ezekiel refers to Pharaoh in his own prophecies as a red dragon, making this connection to Revelation even more clear. Pharaoh himself was a, a red dragon pursuing the Israelites, after they left Egypt. Well, here the dragon was in hot pursuit of the woman, but God provides a way of escape. The Israelites passed through the sea on dry ground, and then Pharaoh followed with his army, and the waters enclosed upon them. But how did the Israelites respond to that experience? to that rescue. They're on the other side and they're singing this song. Moses is leading them in the song and they say this, you stretched out your hand as they're singing to God. You stretched out your hand and the earth swallowed them. It's the same language here that John is now alluding to is the idea that God is protecting his people from the pursuit of the dragon, from the pursuit of the enemy. And Satan continues to come up with creative forms of sweeping away the church with evil. He hasn't slowed his attack upon us. His goal remains to lead the church into compromise with sin. And that might come through cultural. It might come through political compromise. It might come through social pressures. Right? Unfortunately, the church routinely succumbs to these social pressures, constantly compromising. We experience Satan's influence at all levels of education. And soon enough, you'll even see the impact of Satan's worldly agenda in your cereal aisle. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Google Kellogg's. Despite the, the flood of evil and chaos that threatens to sink the church, God provides superior protection. And his strength is mightier than the dragon. Even though we anticipate entering into turbulent waters, we know that our ship will never capsize. We'll never be ultimately flooded. Our faith is unsinkable, not because of the quality of our faith, but because of the object of our faith, because we've placed our faith in Christ alone, who is the provider, the nourisher, the sustainer. Right? In Christ alone, we find our strength and we stand firm through the fiercest drought and storm. And when the storm arrives, we can cling to him as our refuge. And the same wings that rescued the church will enclose around you like an impenetrable shield. 
protecting you against the onslaught of the dragon. And so once again, even here, don't lose sight of the context in which you are protected. It's the corporate body. It's the, the woman that's being attacked. The corporate body that receives God's care. So when individuals are persecuted, they find support within the community. When a member suffers, the whole body responds as the hands and feet of Christ. Gathering together to sing psalms is one of the primary means that God has provided for us to encourage one another. You can read through, through the psalms and you won't get far before you find David frequently talking about the Lord's help through the flood of persecution. Yeah, he experienced persecution throughout his life, and he describes it in language of flood, of evil. And he asks the Lord to protect him and preserve him through that. And so again, we find support in the context of community. And, and the reason why I'm emphasizing that is because the transition here takes place in verse 17 from talking about the woman to her offspring. And I think the point John is making there is that Satan fails to... to to destroy the church as a whole. So what his, his job or what his tactic has become is to take individuals, to isolate them, and to attack them individually. Because that's where he is, has the greatest level of success. And so again, although Satan has indeed been defeated in heaven and on earth, he is still actively seeking to bring harm upon the people of God. He is furious, we read here. In verse 17, he became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And so the child was able to escape his traps, and now the woman has been protected. Right? He attacks the church with every ounce of strength he has. And, and when the gates of hell do not prevail against the church, he turns his sights upon individual believers. Again, you, you just get the impression that he is relentless in his attack. He's not going to give up. The dragon pursues the rest of the woman's offspring who are the true brothers and sisters of Christ. They're described here as those who keep the commandments of God and who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And we see similar language in chapter 14. Look at that real quick. Uh, turn over to chapter 14, verse 12. We read, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Same language. The saints persevere, right? They, they are nourished and protected so that they might endure in obedience to Christ's commands and in faith in Jesus the picture of the perseverance of the saints. And so as we walk in obedience to Christ's commands, as we take part in the fulfillment of his purposes, we are actually taking part in the fulfillment of his promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. As, as we resist the devil, as we guard against his attempts to isolate individuals with deception, we ourselves contribute to the crushing of the serpent's head. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 20. We read this. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, 
but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. He's talking about the the work of Satan even within the church to deceive and to divide. Verse 19, for your obedience, your obedience, believers, is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent, as to what is evil. Here's, here's the key. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So God does the crushing, but it happens underneath the feet of the saints. God is doing the work in and through the church to bring the fulfillment of the gospel promise of Genesis 3.15. All right, so the woman was brought to the wilderness where she is nourished. The dragon attempts to sweep her away there and the Lord brought the protection of the earth to swallow up the threat. And then the dragon brought his attack upon the woman's offspring. So the structure of this passage suggests that we will receive nourishment and protection in the context of corporate worship. As we gather together, where we feed upon Christ and his word. Even though Satan pursues us individually and seeks to isolate us from the flock, we receive our help as we gather together, holding one another accountable, speaking the truth in love and singing praise to the Lord, who is our firm foundation. Even as we participate in in the sacraments, we feed upon Christ, our true manna. And so let us look to him now with gratitude. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have provided true manna in your son. That you have sent him to condemn sin in the flesh. To put sin to death on the cross and to give us his righteousness so that we might be invited in to participate in the crushing of the head of the serpent. But these are incredible promises that are hard to understand and 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 hard to believe at times. And yet we know that you are at work as we gather together, as we worship you, as we sit under the preaching of your word and sing your word, even as we reflect upon the language of the Psalms right, that encourage us in times of persecution and trial, right, that we can bring that before you, knowing that you are with us, that you sustain us, that you uphold us, you even carry us through the wilderness. You support us in the flood. You make sure that we don't drown. And so we are grateful for your provision. We're grateful for your nourishment. Lord, help us to trust. Help us not to to trust in the things of this world, to look to others, to, to create idols for ourselves. But help us to to remain focused upon you, to look to your word to feed us and to restore us and to revive us, Lord. You are our firm foundation. You've provided that firm foundation in your word where we feed upon Christ. And so prepare us now as we also prepare to take and participate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. May all of it glorify you and equip us, your people. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.